The content of CPR Unplugged is designed for entertainment purposes only and is not intended as mental health treatment or medical or mental health advice. Details such as names and locations may have been changed to protect individual privacy. Hello and welcome to CPR Unplugged. I am your host, Jess. Whoever you are, wherever you are, and whatever you're doing today, thanks for joining us. I am joined today by Kathy. She is an employee of CPR and we're going to get into how she kind of, she has a very interesting career path that kind of led her into this field. So we're going to get into that. But first, I'm going to let Kathy introduce herself. Hi, Kathy. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jess. My name's Kathy Abram. I've been with CPR probably about oh, close to two years and uh, mostly do some contract work with CPR, but uh, my specialty is the area of CISM, which is CISM, Critical Incident Stress Management. So I uh, get in quick and get out. Okay, so explain to us a little bit, Critical Incident Stress Management. I could pull it apart and kind of get an idea of what that means, but give us an idea in the field. How does that play out? What does that look like? It essentially came out of the military. The military started this probably back in the 40s and 50s, and it started with things like shell shock, which they were seeing with soldiers who were coming out of battle. And it has gradually developed and really took off probably in the 80s mostly into first responders. So law enforcement, fire, medics, um, and the idea that a lot of what they see is similar to the type of shocking events that the military would be involved in. And the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation, ICISF, was formed with doctors um, Everly and Mitchell and... Uh, they are the ones who truly promoted the whole idea of um, CISM for use in the first responder community. But it also folds over into mm, hospital settings, especially also same type of idea that um, a lot of what hospital personnel see, especially in ER, ICU, are um, very much critical incidents for them too. And it's a very different type of stress that can be dealt with versus uh, longer term stress, like burnout and such. So this is a very short intervention. Okay. So that's what you meant by when you said this is kind of a get in, get out sort of scenario. Very much. And it's for dealing with workplace issues. So it's dealing with a very specific population. We generally don't tend to invite in the two debriefings, which is probably the more common thing we do. We don't invite in civilians who might've been involved. We don't invite patient families. We don't invite civilians at an accident site. This is very much a work-based intervention. There are times where the general population might be invited, but it's very specific. Now, when I hear the word debriefing, I think of all those uh, movies like SWAT, you know, movies that have military type of mm -hmm. tactics and things going on. Is it that kind of debriefing or what does it look like? Because I'm thinking like tactical debriefing. Yes. And tactical is certainly a very common type. And I do think that's probably where mo most people go when they hear the word debriefing. Um, and that has its own place. What we do is a debriefing more to deal with the emotional reactions and physical reactions to the stress of the event. So uh, while we do talk a little bit about the facts of the event, we mostly get into the thoughts, the feelings, the um uh, reactions, physical reactions, emotional behavior, you know, did you go home and kick the dog afterwards, that type of thing um, that 
people go through after they've been involved in a critical incident. Is there a portion of that where you kind of go over how to cope? Oh, absolutely. Now, we talk about the idea that stress is in the eye of the beholder, that what is for one person a critical incident may not be for someone else. And I can give you a couple examples of that. For instance, if you as a first responder or working in a hospital have to deal with a um, very sudden event involving a child and you might have a child of the same age at home, you will probably have a much stronger, very visceral reaction to dealing with that because you have this child of your own that you love. It tends to become very personal in some respects um, versus if someone who does not have children or whose children are much older, there's they may see it a little bit differently. So what's critical for one person is not critical for another. And the idea that all of our life experiences play into it. So if you've been through lots of trauma in your past, you're a little more susceptible to trauma, but again, it kind of depends on how well you've dealt with it over the years too. So when we have first responders who are involved in a critical incident, most of CISM is set up that we can start right away that day and deliver a service, or we can go out for a few weeks, even a little bit longer, to help them understand that you just had a normal reaction to a very abnormal event. And that's very comforting to most people to understand um, some of the things that happened to them. So, for example, my personal case, um, I worked the streets I was uh, started in law enforcement back in 1974 as a dispatcher, and I became an officer in 77 and worked the streets pretty much for about the next four or five years until I became a detective. And then um, I was back on the streets later as a watch commander. And all those years on the street, I knew that the one call I did not want to have to go to was going to have to be able to put down a deer, which all the officers I worked with laughed at me. It's like, oh, shoot, you know, put down a deer. This is Minnesota for crying out loud. And uh, but I knew that I couldn't do that, that that would be really hard. And uh, late in my career, I almost made it. And one morning going home, I came across a big accident. And it turned out that one of the cars had hit a deer that was pulling itself into the center median and obviously needed to be put down immediately. And I knew I couldn't wait for somebody else to come do it. And I got out, I put the deer down, I got back in my squad car. And I started shaking so violently that my gun went flying across the car and I couldn't make it stop. And I remember thinking, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? And gradually it eased off. But for the next 10 years, I thought, wow, there's something seriously wrong with me. And uh, it wasn't until I went through the training for SISM that I saw a video of a polar bear who had been chased down, so obviously running for its life. Um, it gets tranquilized, and as it starts to come out of being tranquilized, it starts shaking violently. And the scientist is explaining to the people in the video about how this is normal reaction. This is how the stress gets worked off. Um, and then the bear takes two extremely deep breaths, which is also something we teach in SISM. Um, we're very much... Our neurological systems are very much animalistic. And so there's a lot of comparisons between humans and animals. And I remember watching this video and going, oh my God, I'm okay. I'm just the polar bear. And the idea that if we can give that kind of information to people who have experienced that in a critical, in a critical incident, um, it's very, very calming to be able to explain to people, here's why you got tunnel vision. Here's why you didn't hear the shots. 
here's why uh, the images keep coming back to you all the time. Um, it's very calming and truly helps people. And if you can get in right away and help them with some of those things, then as the brain processes it and finds the little file folder to put away in the brain, it can truly make the event much less tragic or much less impactful than maybe it might've seemed at first. Have you ever had to personally go through a debriefing? No, I haven't. And it, I look back to, and that's one of the reasons why I am such an advocate for them. I look back at the times I should have used it. I, when I was a detective back in the mid eighties, I did child abuse and vulnerable adult cases for four years. And um, it was cutting edge at that point. Nobody had ever really called it that and or had a division for it. And so it was very new. And that's all I did constantly because nobody else in our county even did it. So I was out doing for all the cities in that county. And I came out of those four years, an absolute basket case. And uh, I so could have used quite a few debriefings or at least some one-to-one work going through that so that uh, it wouldn't have had the impact on me that it did. But at least in learning um, about SISM now, I'm able to look back and see those issues and kind of almost not replay it, but calm it down a little bit and put it back in its folders a little bit so I can understand kind of what I went through. But yes, I I definitely could have used it. What kind of uh, outcomes have you seen as you've been providing it for others? Oh, it's wonderful. Um, To be able to walk into a room and when we debrief people, which is just one of the tools, that's just one of the tools. There's uh, about five or six that we learn when we learn to do CISM. Um, Debriefings are the most commonly known one. But when you walk in to do a debriefing and you have a group of people in a circle and uh, they all look like a bunch of knots, they're all just uh, up. It's almost like if they crossed their arms across their body and made fists and sat with their legs crossed, that's kind of the way they look. And by the end of the debriefing, if it's gone well, people are sitting back in their chairs, they're open, they're laughing, they're telling jokes. So that's what I love about it. To be able to go in and within an hour and a half or two hours, totally have changed the feeling for this group so that they can get up and be happy and laugh and go back to work. And it doesn't mean that that's the end of dealing with the event at all, but at least it's taken a huge piece of the pressure off of them um, and allows them to process it a, a little differently so that they can go forward better. Have you experienced any situations in your life where you've had either an acute reaction to an event or where you struggled with a a long-term mental health uh, condition or symptoms? I think for me, the acute one that I had was the polar bear one, the, the shaking, the very violent shaking. There was other times where my life was in danger Um, And I didn't have a reaction. I had a guy try and kill me one time. I got ambushed and he had a shovel and was going to kill me. Um, And I don't remember even having a reaction from that. So this is why I think it's when I look at the putting the deer down one, how odd it should be that that's the one that I had the reaction to. But I think that, again, goes back to the the, uh, saying that we talk about that everybody has a different viewpoint about what a critical incident is. What's critical for me is not critical for you. And so I do think that that's a really good example of that. And I also think that for me, learning SISM truly has been a very therapeutic thing to be able to deal with the child abuse pieces, especially, but it's also helped me with a lot of the other events too. I think way back when I was on patrol, uh, I was hit by a train and 
I survived. And yeah, I guess we could call that a critical incident, although my injuries kind of precluded me feeling a lot of the emotional pieces. But I have been able to look back now and I I look at that and I look at my reactions going forward, probably until just about 10 years ago, if I heard a train signal and didn't know there was a train there. So driving along and a train might come up alongside you or something, I would scream. So that's quite a, a strange reaction. And I have finally been able to process that myself and look at it from the scientific piece of what's happening. It's the element of surprise, uh, which is a big piece of what happens with CISM. Um, one of the ways we explain it is if your first first responders, you're going to a call, what you feel might be a fairly routine call, and you get to the call and it pretty much takes a 90 degree turn. It's totally something different. Um, and there's a shock value um, that comes along with that. And that's the unsettling piece uh, for people, especially who are used to being in control all the time and being able to handle those types of events. When something happens, that they feel is out of their control, all of a sudden it kind of punches through this plexiglass barrier that they have up in front of them. So yeah, so I think that learning um, CISM has truly helped with me processing some of my issues from the past too. So it's been, it's been really good. I am a total believer in it. And otherwise it, I wouldn't keep doing it because it's a very emotional thing to go out and do. It's a very hard thing to sit down with a group of people and process things that are horrible to listen to, the visual pieces, the emotional pieces. One time I was doing a debriefing in a hospital and it had been a super tragic event that had moved through the hospital. So it involved an awful lot of different departments. And I had a doctor sitting next to me who sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And um, my view of that is that it's not my job to console him. It should be the people who he works with. They should be the ones consoling him because when I leave, they're what's left. So it was really hard, really hard to be sitting next to this man who's so desperately in need of some consolation. And finally, a nurse who was across the circle, it was a big circle, she got up and came over and knelt down next to him. And I had her take my seat and I moved over to her seat so that she could do that consoling piece. But I think back to that, that was really, really hard to not reach over and just pat him on the back or console him in some way. So those are really hard things to do to listen to that type of pain. Um, But if in the end, I didn't feel the sense of relief, and that's kind of when I'm done with it, is that I feel like I can sit back in my chair and laugh and smile also. And if I don't feel have that feeling, then I, then I know I did something wrong, that I didn't finish. There's a piece that maybe was missing. But for me to have that sense of this helped, this helped, this really did help. What I did was okay. It was hard to listen to, but it's okay. So there's that whole piece of it's very satisfying to see people feel better, especially people who are just doing their job. You know, it's, it's a very different piece. How do you maintain your own mental health? <laughs> well, I was joking earlier. I said lots of drugs and alcohol, but that's that's obviously a joke, people. Um, <laughs> I actually get a lot out of, my, for my mental health, I get a lot out of doing the debriefings. That's very cathartic for me also. Um, over the last year or so, I've been doing a lot, Zoom especially, with um 
helping medical workers, especially in the hospitals and around the state with the COVID issues and have been talking a lot just about the sense of loss that they feel. I lost my husband back in 2007, which was unbelievably awful. And to this day, I still feel like I get a little bit of catharsis out of even talking about grief issues there with people, but that helps me feel better too. I do a lot of gardening. I like to work in the yard. That is kind of my mental health regimen right there. So I think that's where I get it. But I do think that it's simply just addressing it on a almost daily basis with other people that are in crisis. And it's helped me to see, put my life in perspective and put my pain in perspective also. Now, having been in the field for so long and working in different areas, dispatch, um, boots on the ground, you know, detective, I can imagine that you've seen the stigma that's sometimes associated with mental health in that field with first responders, frontline workers. What's been your experience with that? And have you seen it change over time? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's changed amazingly. So um, the job has changed amazingly. So I can't imagine how hard it is for first responders now, especially law enforcement to be out there. I mean, I got sent out with a gun and a pair of handcuffs, and um, that was pretty much it. Not even a nightstick or anything or mace or tasers. So for them, the job has become incredibly complicated, I think. I, I do think that it has changed. The, the mental health piece has changed a lot. When I first started, they were just opening up all the um, um, institutions and putting people out into group homes. And all of a sudden, we had a lot more homeless people than what we had ever had to deal with before. Uh, So that part became very different. It's always been very hard, although I think it's gotten better, to find places to put people who need help. I think that's been um, a very hard part. But again, it becomes, in a lot of respects, it's a how much do people want to pay on their taxes issue to create bed space to put people who need that help. Um, So the jails kind of became the dumping ground. So when I first started um, as an officer, I had to jail. So it was, and back then I was the only jailer. So it was me and 50 inmates. We had a relatively small jail. So that was a very interesting piece to have to do that as a 21 year old girl. And um, the inmates were inmates. I didn't see a lot of mental illness at that point, but yet by the time I uh, was a watch commander and um, then we had 300 and some inmates and I would have to supervise the jail at night when I was on the night shift, that was under my um, purview also. I spent a lot of time over in the jail. This would have been um, into the 90s where I was over handholding a lot of mental illness. That's about the time I got my master's degree And um, so I would be over there dealing with a lot of very mentally ill inmates. So for me, it was very interesting to see the transition over time from jails being jails to jails being mental health institutions, essentially. What about the stigma associated with being a first responder and struggling with mental illness? Has that changed at all? Oh, yeah. No, I think that's it's changed a lot. I think that they're truly it feels to me anyhow, like there used to be more respect for officers than what there is now. But I do think that 
it's come along the lines where so much more has been expected of officers. When I was on the road back in the 70s, we didn't have to be mental health clinicians. Um, you know, we went to domestics, we went to accidents, we did those things. And I think that what we've asked of law enforcement and also um, medics and firefighters also, I think that that has changed immensely over the years that I've been around. And uh, I, I feel bad for them. That's not what they got into the job for. They got into the job to fight fires and do CPR and go to accidents, that type of thing. And I think that the job itself has changed tremendously. And I don't know how we're going to fix that quickly. It took a long time to change. It's like trying to turn the Titanic around maybe and have it come back into, I think we definitely need to be better as a society about helping our mentally ill and getting the help out there for them, putting the boots on the ground with um, the first responders and having them have that type of help. I, I know there's nobody in law enforcement that's going to say, oh, heck no, we don't want that. Because yes, they do. They want that help out there too, because that's not what they don't know what to do with it either half the time when they run into it. And to be able to you know, CIT training, critical incident um, training to identify mental illness issues has been very helpful, but it still doesn't mean you're not sitting there with them instead of them getting some help faster. Does that make any sense? Um, I think that uh, things like what CPR does with the interactions with the first responder groups out working with the paramedics and fire especially, but it's just the way it needs to go. I think that uh, we do need to have that out there more, that it was a great idea to close the institutions way back when, but in the end, there still are some people who can't take care of themselves, who need help. And I think we need to better look at us as a society about how do we provide that for people? Uh, and I think we're doing a terrible job uh, or have been, I think it's starting to turn. I think the Titanic is turning a little bit here, um, but it's got a long way to go. Do you feel like CSM plays a role in that, turning oh, things yeah. around? I do. I think that if we can keep our first responders more grounded and more emotionally healthy, maybe not mentally healthy, but emotionally healthy, because truly um, first responders and SISM isn't meant for mental illness. It's, that's not what it's for. It's to help regular people do their jobs better. It's to help ease up some of the pieces. So for instance, I remember um, one of the earliest debriefings I ever did was a um, room full of police officers and most of them were pretty young. It was a younger department and uh, we went to close the door and I said, is there anybody we're missing? And they said, well, yeah, Joe, but he's old and crusty. He won't come. He thinks this is, you know, baloney. It's like, okay, fine. So I go to shut the door and at the last second I get an arm on the door and in walks Joe. And every jaw in the place dropped as all these young officers watch old and crusty come sit down. And within about 10 minutes, he was sobbing. He was sobbing. And to normalize that piece of it, I had to tell the group, you know, he's been around a long time. He's seen an awful lot. He's pulling around this huge trunk of old calls like this that he hasn't been able to deal with. And through tears, he looks up and he looks at the whole group and he says, she's right. All of you better take better care of yourselves or you end up like me. <laughs> and I think that is the problem that first responders are pulling around 
these awful, awful things they've heard and seen and the times their lives have been endangered, um, all of pulling all of this around. And if we can at least deal with some of that, but then with the newer people, help them understand the impacts of those things and teach them ways for coping. So um, some of the things when I go out and I teach the coping mechanisms I talk about, there's some very scientific pieces that are easy, like uh, the fact of taking two really deep gut breaths um, stimulates the nerve that runs under the diaphragm. So if you take a deep breath and your diaphragm brushes it, it releases endorphins, which are naturally calming. They bring down your heart rate. They bring down your um, blood pressure. And if you do that once an hour, you're calmer all day long. You feel better. The other thing is the idea of when you're going through critical incidents, sometimes many times a day, your body is dumping hormones into you to help you get through it. Well, they don't always all go away. They don't all burn off. They stay for days. So the idea that to help yourself, you need to be hydrating and flushing them out of your system so you can go home and have a good night's sleep. There's some of those very, very physical, basic things that you can do. But I do think that for people to understand, it's a hard job. You need to be able to talk about it. I do think there's some good research out there on how to help families deal with it also better. Um, that's kind of a newer direction heading off into how do you talk to spouses or significant others of people who have been involved in critical incidents, because truly we, we can help them at work, but then you send them home. What do they know how to do with this too? So I like to see that that area is starting to open up more that we can, we can help them. And I, it's been interesting too. I love asking when I do a debrief, who all has done this before? And the ones where I get to and they're like, oh, this is like my 15th one, please the heck out of me because it's like, wow, you've been through one 15 times and you're still here because, because it's helpful or maybe you can help alleviate something with the stress piece for them. They're getting enough out of it. They keep coming back. And that is just awesome. That is so cool. That is really awesome. Is there anything that we didn't talk about today that uh, we should, we should cover? Oh, let's see. World peace. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I, anybody who has more questions about it, you know, I'd be happy to answer them if people want to give me a call um, or send me an email or something. I'm always open to the idea that this is amazingly helpful and the more we can do it, the better. That uh, the worst thing is for people to think, that what's happened to them isn't a big enough deal to need some help. And it's like, no, no, most of us can use something all the way along the line. And when I talk to people about it, I, I can't liken it to if you were going to work today and a car pulled out in front of you, but you didn't hit it, you swerved around it. You still had, that was a critical incident because you still had the chemical dump. That's why it your, takes your breath away. That's a critical incident. And if we can get to the idea of this is something that happens to all of us, and granted, in first responderdom, it happens a lot more. But I think that if we can understand that that was, that was it, and that maybe if it's something, you do need to sit down and at least talk it over with somebody. I'm a huge proponent on therapy. Everybody in the whole world should be in therapy their whole lives. Because having <laughs> that, that blank wall to talk to and just download onto is so helpful. So helpful. So half the population should be therapists and the other half I'll go talk to them or something like that. <laughs> But I do think it's just a matter of everybody recognizing that um, sometimes we all need some help to get through something. Definitely. 
All right. And we will leave uh, Kathy's contact information in the show notes. But real quickly, Kathy, is there an email address where people can reach out to you if they have questions? Yes, it's kabram at crisis prep and recovery. It's such a long one. Crisisprepandrecovery.com. Yeah. Awesome. I'll get that. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. This was a pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you, Jess. It's always good to be able to tell people about SISM. It's, it's fabulous. It's a great, great thing to know how to do. Got questions or ideas for the podcast? Or perhaps you have your own story to share. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcast at crisisprepandrecovery.com or call 602-281-7795. You can also find us online at cprpodcast.podbean.com or wherever you prefer to find your podcast. CPR Unplugged was produced by Crisis Preparation and Recovery, Inc. The intro and outro music was created by Rob Wilson. The CPR podcast team includes Tamara Lamontine, Ben Edwards, Laura Kaufman, Rob Wilson, and Michael Magarinos. Special thanks to Jason Spisak for technical support.